First Timothy chapter three is where we've been studying. We use this section of scripture, the first Timothy, second Timothy, Titus, these are called the pastoral epistles for a reason. They address pastors, and while the teaching there is for all of the Lord's church, there is specific teaching of how the Lord's church is to be structured and led. And he did not leave us to our own devices to come up with our own scheme. And and that gracious of the Lord who said, I will build my church, not only to be the, the master builder, but he gave us the blueprints. And he said, this is how I want my church to function. And so it's very serious matter that we're, we're talking about as we study these different texts that we believe, the doctrines that we believe. But here before us are the qualifications for leadership. I must tell you that it's very humbling. And um, so many things I could say as I deal with a portion of Scripture that deals with my office, the office the Lord has called me to. And yet this is so vitally important because I believe that our, the church today is in the condition that it is because the pulpit is in the condition that it is in. And the view of leadership and the view of how things, not just as the pastor, but how things should be done in the Lord's church. And so with that in mind, we humbly uh, come to the scripture asking for light. Would you please pray for your pastor? Uh, I in no wise think that I am the poster child, boy, man for what a pastor ought to be. I strive to be. My heart certainly longs to be, but would you listen as we study what the Scripture says? If you can take away the one who's doing it that, uh, and just listen uh, to the voice of the Lord, uh, I'm at a loss of what to say there, but in no wise think that I attained or have attained or that I am, have arrived in this area. And so I covet your prayers. Part of your duty is to pray for me that I would live out, uh, and all the leadership of the church would live out, uh, the, the guidelines that the Lord has for us. So with that in mind, let's ask for his grace and his help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word, and even the uncomfortable portions that we must look at should be uh, for our encouragement and uplifting and that we would be excited about coming to learning and focusing on what you have for us. And so I pray, Lord, as the pastor of this beloved church, that you would help me tonight. And uh, not only just to preach and teach this portion of Scripture, but to, to be the man that I should be and long to be, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Mather family was one of the early Puritan preaching families in America. Cotton Mather, Increase Mather, all those Puritan names that they chose. But Cotton Mather, one of the, the greatest of the early American preachers, wrote, The Office of the Christian Ministry Rightly Understood is the most honorable and important that any man in the whole world can ever sustain. And it will be one of the wonders and employments of eternity to consider the reasons why the wisdom and goodness of God assigned this office to imperfect and guilty men. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher are to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men, to display in the most lively colors and proclaim in the clearest language the wonderful perfections, offices, and graces of the Son of God, and to attract the souls of men into a state of everlasting friendship with Him. It is a work which an angel might wish for as an honor to his character, yea, an office which every angel in heaven might covet to be employed in for a thousand years to come. It is such an honorable, important, and useful office 
that if a man be put into it by God and made faithful and successful through life, he may look down with disdain upon a crown and shed a tear of pity on the brightest monarch on earth. I would say that Cotton Mather had a high view of the office of a bishop. In verse 1 of our text here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we've already begun to study this portion. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, that word interchangeable, elder, bishop, pastor, all the same, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, and we'll just pause right there. It has been said that those who are looking for an easy job will not find it in the pastorate. The Holy Spirit describes this office by the word work. Did you not catch that? He that desireth the office of a bishop desireth a good, not diversion or hobby, but work. Shepherding involves sheep, and I've not ever shepherded real sheep except the Lord's sheep, but I can imagine that any Herding, feeding, farming uh, job would be a very difficult one. Those of you who have been on the farm, I, I praise the Lord that my parents had sense enough to sell the farm and move to town when I was just a little boy. And so I, I was spared the hog killing, uh, slopping, cow herding jobs that, that they talk about with such joy in, in the old days. And, and in fact, my mother was milking a cow when she was nine months pregnant with me. Now, why she was doing such a thing, I don't know. Except to know her, she was a very determined person. And uh, the cow got spooked. This is why I'm the way I am. <laughs> I just thought I'd let you know. And, 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 and went off, and mother was trying to stop the cow, and, and, she, and she, the cow dragged, she held onto her tail for some reason. I don't know. This is the story that's been handed down, uh, though it may be apocryphal. It may be just my brothers and sisters trying to make a point of why I'm the way I am, but uh, dragged mother over the pasture. And so I'm just glad they, they sold the farm and moved to town when they did. But I do know this. That sounds like work all that, that they were involved in. And so the Lord's work is that, isn't it? It's, it's work. It involves preaching. Some people have the myopic view that a preacher just works one hour a week. I've always thought that was two or three. However often he, he stands and just talks for about an hour, and that's it. Well, um, the, he does preach, but there's much more for every hour a pastor stands before you. There's probably at least eight hours behind in study and preparation for that one message. And so you can, you can imagine, and, and even more in some, some cases, the praying, the counseling, the visiting, and the constant care, and the concern for souls and the spiritual welfare and the work of the Lord in so many and varied ways. But the Bible says here in verse 1, the word bishop means to, to look over, to oversee, to superintend, to exercise oversight and care over. That sounds like work, doesn't it? And the word came from a secular life, that referring to a construction form. And in the classical Greek, they knew immediately when Paul used that word, they thought of a man who was overseeing the building of a building. He oversaw the plans, the engineering, the, the workers. He, he made sure everyone was doing what they were supposed to do in constructing the building. The Greek authority Thayer defines it, an overseer, a man charged with the duty of seeing that things to be done by others are done rightly as in a curator, a guardian, a superintendent. And the word then was taken up by the church 
to define the responsibilities of the office of a pastor. And we've looked at the moral qualifications of a bishop. He must be blameless. Of course, we've said that it's not perfect. No one is. But it, it means that no charge can be laid against him. And if they were, they would, the charge would not stick because they're not true. Uh, no one can lay hold upon anything in his life which would bring a reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, that's a tall order, isn't it? That's a very uh, serious uh, qualification. He represents to the world or should represent to the world a godly life of sincerity and integrity and that there's no grounds for any wrong uh, accusations. Expositor's commentary says, It is not enough for him not to be a criminal. He must also be one against whom it is impossible to bring any charge of wrongdoing such as could stand impartial examination. He must be without reproach. Not only should he have a a blameless testimony, but in the matters of marriage, the next thing right at the top of the list, he goes into the moral qualifications, not only of of the pastor's life, but of his relationships in the matter of sexual purity. A one woman kind of man is literally what the Greek says there, or a man of one woman. It is not speaking, as we've said, of polygamy that was unheard of in the church. A man would not even be allowed to be a member of a church who had more than one wife and let alone uh, be a pastor. And so that's not what uh, the the Scripture has in mind here. In other words, it goes without saying that would not uh, be allowed. Uh, There are some breeds my wife and I like to watch. Did you watch recently the dog show, the the Westminster dog show, and and a beagle won it? Did you know that? We have a a grand dog, a beagle named Bama, that is at our house, and and we love uh, Bama, and... Sometime, most of the time, and, and the beagle breed—they're an interesting breed. But of all those fancy dogs with their curled hair and all this, the the, the honest to goodness raw bone beagle one. And I just—I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. But there are certain uh, breeds of dogs who are called one-man dogs. The Airedale—I'm not familiar. I've never seen it. I've seen one on TV or in a book. But the Airedale is one of those breeds that has one owner, one person that has its affection, and no one else comes between that one. That one. And so you wouldn't want to have ten children in Airedale. I don't think. Maybe I may be wrong there. But I've read that they are a one owner, one-person kind of dog. And there are others that are that way. That's what the scripture has in mind here. Uh, my daddy used to have a, a, a saying about a wishy-washy person, a two-faced person. You know what he would say about that person? That, that man, he's anybody's dog that will hunt with him. Have you ever heard of that? Just he'll hunt with you. He'll hunt with, but my daddy's bird dogs, and he raised them, they knew his voice, and they did what he said to do. And that's what he had in mind. His favorite one was named Sadie. Is actually named Sarah after my wife, my mother, his wife. She had a fit that he named the dog after her, and so he modified. He thought that was a high compliment, my, my daddy. He just thought, what can I give her for Valentine's? I'll name my favorite bird dog after her. Well, mother was fit to be tied, and so he amended it to Sadie instead of Sarah. But his favorite was a, a dog named Frank. And Frank was just a, one of those black and white spotted bird dogs that just, he, when my daddy would whistle, he came and sat right there and waited for the next command. Well, that's what the scripture has in mind, a one dog, one man dog. <laughs> it's kind of a, an unusual way of looking at it. But the pastor should be a man who loves only one woman as his wife. 
It is obvious, it is known, he is loyal exclusively, physically, emotionally to his wife alone. Again, because our relationship with the Lord as believers is the relationship of, of Christ and his church, our marriages mirror that, don't they? And uh, this is so vitally important. We see in, in Titus 1 verse 8, the other portion of scripture that we read that is parallel to this, that a bishop or pastor must be temperate or exercise self-control. And we'll look that, at that in just a, a moment in more detail. Uh, and all godly people should be people of self-control because that is a, a, a fruit of the spirit in a, of a yielded believer's life. 1 Corinthians 9.25 gives that example. Every man that striveth for the mastery is to be temperate or exercise self-control in all things. But this self-control extends to, to all the appetites, food and drink, possessions, gifts, temper and desires. And these are money. Other things are mentioned here. The, the true, clear translation is given here in the authorized version, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-control in these areas. Every Christian marriage, as I've mentioned, is a divine object lesson of Christ and his church. And we as married people should make that our goal. What a testimony. Your greatest testimony is your testimony in your marriage if you are married. And it shows Christ's love and sacrificial uh, relationship with his, his bride, an exclusive relationship, isn't it? He's a jealous God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's the idea here. It, it should be pure, intentional, sacrificial, selective or exclusive, uh, nurturing, providing, guiding, and single-minded. And so the pastor then should be blameless, above reproach in all relationships, especially in his married life, if he is married. And that, of course, goes without saying. Then we see in verse 2 that he is to be vigilant. The, the scripture says, uses that word, the husband of one wife, vigilant. Uh, and again, the, the word temperate is, is, is looked at there. In the, the Greek word literally means uh, uh, someone who is, who is temperate. And we'll get back to that in ju just a, a moment. But pastors must be like the, the sons of Issachar who were uh, to Israel described in First Chronicles 12, verse 32, who, men who understand the times and with the knowledge of what Israel should do. But not only should they be blameless and vigilant, but the elder must also be sober. He, he gives that. Now, uh, what does it mean by that? Sober or prudent or well-disciplined. He, he knows what his duties are and carefully, prudently seeks to carry those out. He doesn't wake up in a different world every day and says, well, what do I do now? What do I do today? The scripture is very clear, and he gives his life over to living that out and carrying those responsibilities out. In other words, he's ser serious about spiritual things. That doesn't mean a sober-minded person is not someone who doesn't have a sense of humor. Uh, it's not saying that at all. But it's someone who's not frivolous or flippant or giddy about serious things, and there's nothing more serious than when we come to handle the Word of God and the souls of men. This is not an entertainment time. And I've heard preachers who de de declare and de de decry the church service being just an entertainment, who then see go about just telling jokes and telling stories in an entertainment fashion. That's not preaching the Word of God. It is doing something. It's, it's telling or, or entertaining. But to be serious about the, the Word of God and teaching it and, and making it known to others. The world is lost. The hour is late. Judgment is coming. Life is fleeting. Souls are always in the balance. 
And the forces of evil are forever pushing and molding and seizing and never abating, never taking a day off, never to Satan say, let's just don't do devilment today. No, every day it seems as if the, 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 the minions of hell increase their efforts against the homes and the purity and, and the moral fiber of our, our nation. Of course, he enjoys life and has a sense of humor, but does not waste time frivolously is the idea here, but looks at the present through God's eyes, thoughtful, careful, not rash or, or loose. And he uses the standard in Philippians 4 verse 8 that we all should live by as we examine those things that we allow into our hearts and lives, whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and good, if there be any virtue or praise, think on these things. And so he's serious about that. The pastor's mind must be controlled by the mind of Christ, and which is the word of God, and not by fads of the day, I feel so sorry for pastors who try to find the latest bandwagon. What can we do to tweak it to, to, to get more people? And there's always this, this thing that they're trying to, uh, to, to, uh, to find out how to influence people. When we're called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the Holy Spirit will use those things to build his church. Not the fleeting philosophies of men and the latest things handed down by the denominational bigwigs or the talk show host, or the Hollywood darlings, or even the popular religion of the day. All of that changes and is very fickle. Or even his own feelings. The pastor must go by the scriptures. I often have to check myself and say, Chris, you know, that's not right. That, 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 that philosophy is wrong. And uh, but put that idea away. And I, and I want you to know I preach more to myself than I ever do to you. All of this has been preached in my study before I ever entered the pulpit, and, and not, not to mention my own personal private walk with the Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord, and he must be Lord of all. He must rule me, and uh, that's what I must daily and constantly keep before me. Then we see in verse 2 that the pastor must have good behavior. And you might say, well, that goes without saying. You've already said that in several different ways, but, but he says there, of good behavior. Uh, some translate good behavior as respectable, uh, or, but it carries with it much more than that. It has the idea of orderliness and even dignity, of living a well-ordered life. He is to have a well-disciplined life. And uh, I made, uh, I shouldn't say the mistake, but I asked my wife when I was studying this portion of Scripture, I said, <laughs> You know, if you, don't ask your wife a question if you don't want to, to hear the truth. And I said, Do you, would, you, would you say that I live a, a well-disciplined life, a well-ordered life? And I'm not going to tell you what she said. <laughs> she should know, and she tells me, you know, she said, well, sometimes you get too focused and you need to, you know, I, I think she was, I think I'm translating that uh, I should stop and smell the roses and be a little bit more uh, down to earth. And so I took that with the spirit with which it was given in that wifely way. But, but we're to live well-disciplined lives. Homer Kent, in his commentary on the pastoral epistles, writes, The ministry is no place for the man whose life is a continual confusion and unaccomplished plans and unorganized activities. The Greek word here for good behavior is cosmos, and it is the opposite of the Greek word chaos. It is the counter-opposite of that. A spiritual leader must have an orderly lifestyle, not a chaotic one. Now, that's hard to achieve in this chaotic world, isn't it? 
And there are seasons of our life where life was much more chaotic than they are than it is now. I remember having the toddler stages and and all all the rest. And sometimes it just seemed like life was chaos and and uh, longing for that that place of orderliness and 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 all. And so it's it's not so much uh, the scripture here that everything is perfectly in its place. That's that's not in this world, is it? I mean, if it is, you spend all your time just arranging the pencils because they're going to get out of order if you've got children or grandchildren around. But a whole attitude of how life is to be lived. What is important? What is the most next important thing that we should be doing? What are these unchangeable tenets that must be seen to, that must be lived out, that must be held before us? And this orderliness orderliness carries over into the life of the church. The church will always reflect the life of the pastor. And so the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth with their abuses of the spiritual gifts and the sin that was allowed in the church when he rebuked them for the church services at Corinth had turned into just a chaotic, everyone doing what they want. If somebody wanted to sing, they sang. If they wanted to preach, they preached. Whether somebody else was or not, speak in tongues, it was just chaotic. And he says, if somebody were to come into one of your services, you know, what does he tell them? They would say, you're mad. You're crazy. A heathen pagan coming into one of your church services would shake their head and say, you're crazy. Now, that's sad, isn't it? And that should never be said of the church of God. And then he says, in light of that, for God is not the author of confusion. That's the context that he writes this. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Then the scripture says he is to be given to hospitality. And the Greek word is philozion. And the word zeon means a stranger or a foreigner. And, of course, the word philo or filio means being kindly toward strangers. It's literally what it means. It it does not have the idea of what we usually comes to mind in modern-day thinking. Come over to my house for dinner, and we'll have a big time. Then I'll come over to your house in two or three weeks and have dinner. And I'm not saying that that should not take place, but that's not what hospitality means here in the qualifications of a pastor. The, The hospitality spoken of here is found, in Kenneth Wiest in his commentary says, in the occasion, in the fact that in the days of the great Roman persecution, Christians were banished and persecuted and rendered homeless. Or in the case of traveling preachers and teachers, like Paul and Timothy and Silas often were, ministering from church to church, these servants of God were to be received and cared for by the pastor, the bishop. Or because in the early centuries, the local churches had no church edifice, and often the church would meet in his home. And he ought to be willing and open to opening his home for, for that kind of thing. Here's what our Lord taught about it in Luke chapter 14, verse 12, in that parable of the great supper. When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors lest they also bid thee again the reciprocal invitation and recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maim, the, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. What is he saying there? The, the pastor ought to be of an open-hearted mind to help those in need, and especially other travelers, Christian workers, missionaries, and, and then strangers, he says, foreigners here who, who may have need. William Barclay wrote in his commentary, in the ancient world, inns were notoriously bad. 
in one of Aristophanes' plays, Heracles asks his companion where they will lodge for the night, and the answer is where there are the fewest fleas. <laughs> Plato speaks of the innkeeper being like a pirate who holds his guest to ransom. Uh, and uh, Inns tended to be dirty and expensive and, above all, immoral. They were nothing short of brothels. They had none of the connotation of what comes to your mind as an inn today. The ancient world had a system of what were called guest friendships. Over generations, families had arrangements to give each other accommodations and hospitality. Often the members of the families came in the inn uh, to be unknown to each other by sight and identified themselves by means of what were called tallies. The stranger seeking accommodation would produce one half of some object, like the half of a coin cut in a, or something in a, in a strange way, and the host would possess the other half of the tally, and when the two halves fitted each other, then the host knew he had found someone they had long-standing relationship with and they should befriend this person, and the guest knew that the host indeed was the ancestral friend of his household. In the Christian church, there were wandering teachers and preachers who needed hospitality. There were also many slaves with no homes of their own to, to whom it was a great privilege to have the right of entry into a Christian home. It was of the greatest blessing that Christians should have Christian homes ever open to them in which they could meet people like-minded to themselves. And so you get a broader meaning here of what the word means that he should be hospitable. Pastors should be approachable and available. And when visitors enter their home, they should soon sense what his true character is and, and they should be made to feel at home. Then he tells us there that the pastor must be able, given, ready to teach. There are many in the church who are able to teach. We praise the Lord for teachers. We, we need them in teaching Sunday school and other, other ways. There'll be many with the gift of teaching in the church, and we praise the Lord for this, but the pastor must be a teacher. It is intrinsic to what he does. He should be a very skilled teacher who works hard at studying and understanding the scriptures and the doctrines to be able to explain them and, and to teach them readily, simply, and in an understandable way. Chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and in doctrine. And this is one of the qualifications that sets the elders uh, from the deacons. As we study, the, the very next portion of scripture deals with the qualifications for deacons. And they're all, almost absolutely parallel, identical with this exception. The deacon may not have, can, may can teach, but is not required to be able to teach and hold a service and instruct in doctrine. But a pastor must have that, that, that ability and that giftedness. This is why God gave his church pastor teachers in Ephesians chapter 4. When he gives that list of those things that he gives the church, that office is almost a, a hyphenated office, not just a pastor and a teacher in a separate connotation, but as one, a pastor teacher. All believers are to tell what they know. You will have opportunity to do that tomorrow in some way, no doubt, with a coworker or a neighbor. We're all to tell. Maybe you'll have an opportunity to tell what you were taught today or heard in Sunday school or whatever. We're all ought to be ready in, to give the answer of the hope that is within us and to exercise. And all of us are to study. All of us are to read, study doctrine, to exercise ourselves unto godliness. But not all believers have the gift of, of preaching and teaching. This gift is not a talent or a natural ability. It is an, an unusual and a Holy Spirit-inspired and energized giftedness. 
to teach God's word effectively. He must understand doctrine. Chapter 4 and verse 6 there in the first Timothy tells us, A good minister of Jesus Christ is nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine as opposed to bad doctrine or faulty doctrine or not the whole counsel of God's word. Now, it's very important that a gifted teacher must have humility because knowledge can puff up. And the last thing that a a pastor or a bishop needs is to be prideful about his studies. The Lord has required him, as the early apostle said, we must give ourselves to the word and to prayer. And so he should know doctrine. He should have greater knowledge. But knowledge of the Lord and spiritual growth should never puff up, should never cause pride. He's not to be proud about what he knows or to look down on others because they don't know it. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness instructing. Do you see that qualification? Humbly teaching the word of God. His life should be marked by a lifestyle of holiness. Chapter 4, verse 7 tells us there. But refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. He must live out what he teaches. There in chapter 4, in verse 12 of 1 Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. And he goes on and lists very specifically how that should be. He must avoid error in chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 20 uh, emphasizes that as well, where he says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane or useless and vain babblings and oppositions of science or knowledge falsely so-called. He is to be have strong convictions and to be courageous. Believe it or not, it takes great courage to preach the whole counsel of God's word. And But the pastor is duty-bound to do that with courage and to stand firm. In this day of shifting opinions, who knows what will be illegal in just a, a few few days? And I'm not saying or years or months or whatever to be a fear-monger or anything, but we see the foundations just being uh, obliterated all around us. Well, that will call for courageous stands, will it not? When it becomes uh, the lines are, are clearly drawn. And we want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have kept the faith. That means guarded, protected. I have kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. And this should be the testimony and the goal of every pastor. Another requirement for elders is that they not be addicted to wine. Now, believe it or not, with the scripture being so clear, and I do not have time to deal with this in detail, I aim to, as soon as the Lord gives me liberty in our study here, to, to teach along that line. We do it in our Sunday school lessons and all, but, but it is becoming very fashionable now for, uh, for God's people to drink, something that, that the Scriptures have forbidden and generations of believers have held very, very clear lines, uh, uh, positions along this line. And I've heard everything in the world to try to explain it away. But we must have a biblical approach to all of this. What does he say there? Not given to wine. And very clearly uh, does he say that. He does not have a reputation as a drinker. He doesn't hang out in bars. I've seen some preachers on their blogs tell, meet me at the so-and-so bar for a Bible study, for drinks and Bible study. How pitiful. Do we have to, do we have to get down to that level 
to, to be cool. The, the preacher's not should have a goal to be cool anyway, you know. Approachable, and, and, and that is two different things. Uh, he doesn't have to hang out at bars or in, in scenes associated with drinking. Now, when the, the Bible use of the word wine, and there, there are several different uses of it, but for one thing, the, the wine in biblical days, it was impossible to get the alcoholic content to the level with machines and all today that, that can be done. The, the wine, even today, and the alcoholic content, content is much, much, hundreds of times more potent than it was in, in Jesus' day. In fact, when Paul tells the apostle, uh, tells uh, Timothy to drink wine, it was common in the first century to drink very diluted wine uh, with, with the percentage of water so great that it was non-alcoholic because of the impurity of the water. And But Timothy had stopped doing that. He had totally abstained even from that medicinal uh, wine. His, he was having uh, amoebas, stomach problems. And Paul told him to need to take it in a medicinal way. And so uh, that's as much as we'll say right here. And, and you need to study the scriptures and understand what the scriptures say. Don't just take what people say. We live in a day where people want to take away everything, explain away everything and everything, just live any way you want to, where the scriptures are so clear and worn so strongly in these areas. Oh, may the church be pure. Well, the Old Testament priests in Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 56 had become drunken and had come to a place where the office was being impugned and they violated this and they brought disgrace to the priesthood. Go read Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 56 to see what it says there. A man who is a drinker should not lead the church. He is a bad example. He will cause weaker, younger believers to stumble. And the Bible tells us very clearly to abstain from all appearance of evil. He, he must do that without, with all cause. And then he says he should not be a striker. And really this means someone given to argumentation, just, you know, always sitting on the go to pick a fight or to start a fight or to end a fight. Now, this sounds, in the middle of these qualifications, it's hard to understand why the Apostle Paul would even have to include this. But it means a pugnacious uh, or spirit, or one who easily goes to blows. And really it speaks of his self-control and his temper. He is to react calmly and gently. Now, that's not always easy. You may think, well, what in the world? But you've never been in some of the situations that a pastor can be in at times. In counseling or warning, uh, I have been in my office counseling someone about their sin and have them come over the desk and just come this short of bopping me in the face, you know. And I, I'm not saying that to, uh, that's just can be the situation. When you're dealing with the matters of the soul and sin and pointing out sinfulness and what needs to be done and warning and admonishing as the scripture teaches, that's not always well received. Now, in the flesh, you want to say, just bring it on. Not really, but I mean... <laughs> I just can't say all that I think. You know, I just... In that particular situation, I did say, <laughs> if you think you can do it, just come on. And I, I'm sorry to even have to admit that, but that's part of it. 
that's the only time it's happened like that, and, and it's not funny really at all. But I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, how did I get in this? Me of all people, how am I in this this situation? But uh, you, the the natural tendency is to get on with it, you know, defend your, you know, when someone says you're the you're the sorriest excuse of a preacher I've ever seen in my life, and just bless you out. I mean, that happens, can happen. Well, I mean, you don't stop having feelings because you're a pastor of a church. And, and just say, well, you know, but the Bible says he must be gentle, slow to react. He doesn't settle disagreements by saying, let's meet, let's get out of the church and go out here on the parking lot and settle this. Uh, he's easily to forgive and doesn't hold grudges. Not greedy, a filthy lucre. One of the marks of a false teacher is, is wrong dealings with money. And if anything that the, the pastor must have be clear is in this area, it's always been interesting to me that pastors, that some, some who have the proclivity to get on, get rich quick schemes, and these come through ever so often. But Paul is just saying live for the Lord and live with what you have and what you earn and to be free from the love of money. Now, every believer has to deal with this, and there's always temptations in this way. But he's saying the man of God must be free of this. This is a marked difference from the false teachers he mentioned here. We read about them, those who love uh, filthy lucre, who love uh, money, are in it for the money, which is a, an earmark of false doctrine today, isn't it? Those who uh, teach gain. And I think the scripture settles the matter. If you'll turn over as we close tonight to First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, and he uh, enlarges on this teaching, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich are will to be. They're just determined. That's their life goal. Fall into temptations, uh, temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lust which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows but thou O man of God flee these things and follow after righteousness godliness faith love patience meekness Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. When we go back to our scripture there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see not a brawler, patient, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house. I think the scripture speaks for itself. We don't have to go into great detail there. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. Of course, this means children at home and under his direct authority. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice. The word novice does not mean a young person. It means an inexperienced person or a spiritually immature person. And uh, it is not an age, although it would seem that a very young believer would not have the, had the opportunity to be uh, experienced and have a life experience that would help him uh, in this matter, I think we have to be careful here because we all know examples of young men who entered the ministry or even in pastoring and they have to start somewhere. 
But the novice here is so inexperienced that the position would exceed his ability to handle it and to get into situations where it could cause irreparable harm. Lest being, and he tells us, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, outside the household of faith, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Well, may the Lord bless his word tonight. Now, Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Now, help us always to live out these things. And as we're looking at the office of a pastor, we realize that these are guidelines that all of us as believers should strive to and to emulate in our living. Lord, we want to to have a church that would be pleasing unto you. Oh, give us grace. Give me grace. And help me, Lord, as your your passion. All of our, our leaders here, the pastoral staff, our deacons, in the, our church and school staff, the radio. May we live out these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.